Hello and welcome to the OMFIT podcast. My name is Lewis McClellan. I'm the editor of the Digital Monetary Institute here at OMFIT, and I'm delighted to be joined today by two representatives of Promontory Financial Group, a division of IBM Consulting. Uh, Elizabeth, would you like to introduce yourself? Great. Thanks, Lewis. Yes, happy to be here. I am a senior principal in Promontory's digital assets practice, where I specialize at the intersection of anti-money laundering compliance and digital asset issues. Prior to joining Promontory, I worked at Coinbase and Stripe in a number of risk strategy and compliance roles, as well as working at a large foreign banking organization, FBO, on a large-scale anti-money laundering remediation strategy. Fantastic. Thank you. And we're also joined by Lorena. Uh, Hi, Lewis. Yes, um, I'm a principal in Promontory's technology information risk management practice, um, blending expertise across practice groups, including that of digital assets to help improve information security programs and mitigate cyber risks for financial institutions. And prior to joining Promontory, I spent over 10 years um, at Visa working as a senior account manager, supporting financial institutions and their digital transformation. Excellent. Thank you, guys. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about what Promontory is and, and what you do there? Sure, maybe I'll start. And Lorena, you can jump in. So uh, Promontory Financial Group was actually started by a former controller of the currency, uh, Gene Ludwig, um, many years ago. And it has evolved to be a premier uh, risk strategy and compliance firm where we advise a number of large foreign banking organizations, um, globally uh, sorry, globally, (laughs) systemically important financial institutions, um, as well as regulators. Um, In about 2016, we started uh, in negotiations to be acquired by IBM and have since integrated with IBM as a division of their um, strategy consulting business lines, um, where we continue to do a lot of the good work that we previously did. um, And we also get to leverage a lot of the technology expertise from IBM, including their blockchain practice. And Lorraine, I'm not sure if you want to jump in as well and provide additional context. Um, Sure. Maybe I just want to mention a couple of the areas that Promontory focuses on. Um, So not only financial crimes, but operational risk management, financial risk management, compliance and conduct, um, strategy planning, quantitative solutions, privacy, cybersecurity, and so many other areas. Fantastic. Yeah, some really interesting areas. And that's exactly what we're going to be discussing today, this uh, really rapidly growing dynamic digital asset space and uh, some of the unique challenges and threats, particularly around financial crime, money laundering and that sort of thing today. Um, so, Elizabeth, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it is about this the, this new digital asset ecosystem that makes it uniquely exposed to, to challenges in the context of money laundering. And, and what are these challenges? Absolutely. So when we think about digital assets, there are certain inherent features that come to mind, right? So pseudonymity, irreversibility, transaction speed, disintermediation, and the fact that these transactions are truly borderless. And all of these features can make digital assets inherently higher risk for money laundering, sanctions evasion, as well as fraud. And of course, these inherent features also pose more significant compliance challenges for compliance officers. So for example, the fact that unlike wires, digital asset transactions do not require the capture of any personally identifiable information for either the originator or the beneficiary of a transaction poses challenges for attribution of beneficial ownership, as well as compliance with the travel rule. 
Additionally, the peer-to-peer or disintermediated nature of these transactions when executed between unhosted wallets, which are wallets that are not hosted by any virtual asset service provider or exchange, um, also challenges compliance with reporting and record-keeping requirements. For example, when you don't know the beneficiary of your customer's transaction, all you have is their public address. And then there's the rapid and irreversible nature of these transactions. The transactions are what we like to call push-based, which means that once they're committed, they cannot be unwound, and they can only be refunded if the transaction recipient chooses to do so. So this obviously poses serious implications for fraud and scams. And unfortunately, digital assets have been heavily implicated in a number of fraud schemes as a result of this capability. So something that kind of makes this concrete for listeners is that a common typology that you can see at exchanges is a social engineering attack, where a person, typically, unfortunately, a vulnerable individual, would be tricked into opening an account with an exchange. And they would be, oftentimes, this trickery happens because they're paying for some scam online service, such as computer support. And they would be instructed to send a fiat wire or ACH into the account and then convert that fiat into cryptocurrency, such as Bitcoin or ETH, and then immediately send that cryptocurrency to an unhosted wallet that is controlled by the scammer. In those instances, that individual's money is then lost forever. They typically have no recourse to get those funds back. There's nothing that the exchange can do to unwind that transaction because it's already sitting in an unhosted wallet that's only controlled by the scammer or the individual. So that's an, that's kind of an unfortunate instance, and, and it really illustrates some of the financial crime challenges that are posed. Um, then there's also the speed at which these transactions occur. So that scenario that I just referred to, something like that can happen in the span of 10 minutes. And also, these are large transactions that can occur very quickly, um, which obviously creates opportunities for rapid movement of large sums, which is a typology that we often see in uh, money laundering schemes, often across borders, and that can also be facilitated further by layering and obfuscation of the transaction if users implement techniques like chain hopping, which is essentially converting one asset into another digital asset very quickly to basically cover their tracks, and that makes monitoring a lot more challenging. And then finally, of course, as I mentioned, there's the borderless nature of these transactions. Based on a digital asset address wallet alone, Um, There's typically no way of knowing if that transaction is cross-border or domestic, and that, of course, makes compliance with AML reg reporting and sanctions much more difficult. And just before we jump to, to kind of the next question, I do want to note that these are just the typical inherent characteristics of digital assets. But it's also worth pointing out that there are certain digital assets that have additional features that make it all all the more challenging and all the more attractive, unfortunately, to illicit actors. So that is the um, privacy coins or coins that have anonymity enhancing features. So you might have heard of some of these in the news. There's coins like Monero, which are privacy by default, um, that basically use a lot of different techniques to obfuscate both the origin of funds, the different parties involved in the transaction transaction and even the amount sent. And then there's also tokens that are not privacy by default, but they do have privacy features. So a common one is Zcash. So it it creates an optionality where someone can send a shielded transaction and therefore shield certain information, including the amount being sent, as well as the parties that are exchanging the funds. So obviously that makes things like monitoring on the blockchain much more challenging. 
And then there's also mechanisms that are used as well that can further complicate and obfuscate um, the, the origin of funds. So these are mixers, tumblers, some of which we've heard before uh, recently have been sanctioned by the U.S. government, um, and as well as privacy wallets, which are somewhat similar, but they're more decentralized and therefore that much harder to sanction and control. So hopefully that provides a, a good summary of a lot of the challenges that compliance officers face as well as law enforcement faces when dealing with digital assets. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess Tornado Cash is the big, uh, the big famous example of the mixer that's recently been, been sanctioned. It's really interesting to think about a lot of these, uh, you know, qualities that, um, for, for the proponents of some of these digital assets are, are desirable, uh, desirable features, you know, speed and, and privacy and the lack of intermediaries and transaction finality and so on. But, uh, there is, you know, although they're, they're desirable for some users, you know, possibly even for legitimate reasons, uh, there is huge issue with around enforcing existing money laundering regulation. So can you talk a little bit about in what ways the existing tools that we have in place to, to combat financial crime and anti-money laundering and so on are, are not adequate? And I mean, as these new digital assets become more popular, are new technologies kind of growing out of that that will help us uh, address the risks that you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So regular transaction monitoring, so your Actimizes, your Oracle Mantises of the world, they focus on fiat. And that doesn't get to on-chain activity or activity that's occurring on the blockchain. So to monitor for high-risk digital asset activity, you have to actually be able to see interactions between the pseudonymous alphanumeric string of public blockchain addresses that are um, interacting on the blockchain. So that's where blockchain analytics comes in. It's the process of analyzing, identifying, and clustering data on the blockchain in order to identify meaningful information about transacting parties and transactions that can then be used to execute financial crimes compliance controls. So blockchain analytics tools like Elliptic, Chainalysis, TRM Labs enable the digital asset industry to identify interactions with high-risk entities and map the flow of funds between different addresses to identify unusual activity patterns that can then support strong suspicious activity slash transaction uh, reporting. Um, so these, these are investigative tools, but these can also be used as um, almost like interdiction tools, and I'll get into that in a little more detail. So an emerging industry practice that we're increasingly seeing among virtual asset service providers, uh, a lot of our clients, is the integration of blockchain analytics into their custodial or transaction settlement technology to support real-time transaction screening. And this enables screening of interactions with sanctioned addresses and allows firms to block those transactions rather than crediting a client's account. Um, I think I mentioned before that these transactions are push-based, which means that once they're committed to the blockchain, those transactions are committed. So it's not the case that, like a wire, you can just re- you can just you know reject it, send it back. Um, but what you can do is you can essentially say, no, you're not getting access to those funds. They're going to be in a blockable account, and we're going to report it. So that um, that capability, that integration, allows that, um, and that is in a way similar to traditional interdiction. But what we're really seeing is that blockchain analytics is essentially a force multiplier that can be deployed 
in a number of AML and sanctions controls. So it could be an input into a customer's risk rating. It could be a component of a firm's travel rule solution. Um, it can also be a component of a firm's sanctions investigations. And then, of course, it's a huge component of their transaction monitoring. Um, and in addition to blockchain analytics, obviously, that's that's sort of the big technology in this space, gets a lot of a lot of face time. Um, it is worth pointing out that there are other tools um, available through commercial providers for travel rule compliance, for instance, as well as um, recently developed uh, fraud detection tools that are specifically designed to provide support for the digital asset industry participants and takes into account uh, information available on chain. But one thing that I always like to point out is, you know, at the start of your question, Lewis, you said, what are the, you know, tools that we have in place right now for AML and why are those not sufficient? So I think, you know, we talked about why they're not sufficient and why you need blockchain analytics. But the thing is, and that's often forgotten, I think, with, with the virtual asset service uh, provider industry is that the traditional tools are also important. They're not, blockchain analytics is not a substitute to behavioral rules-based monitoring. In fact, it's a complement. Um, and what we often see is, you know, exchanges will spend a lot of time implementing blockchain analytics, and they might forget that, you know, they also need to be looking at fiat monitoring because they often provide services for both. And they also need to be looking at not only the behaviors on chain, but also just Typical things like <laughs> um, whether patterns are unusual, whether deposits are too large. So your your typical behavioral-based monitoring, rules-based monitoring is also an important complement to that. And you really need both in order to identify potentially suspicious activity and satisfy your reporting requirements. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally understand. So mostly here you're talking about the tools for enforcement. Can you talk a little bit about the, the regulatory environment for financial crimes? What are the challenges there and, and what's needed to ensure that, that people have the regulatory support that they need to combat this kind of this kind of activity? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think what's really interesting about the financial crimes regulation in the digital asset space is that maybe unlike other areas where everyone says the regulations are not clear, we don't know what the rules are. Um, I think in oftentimes in the financial crime space, the regulators are pretty clear in terms of what they want. The challenge for the industry um, is how to implement what they want, how to actually comply with those requirements when they haven't really been right-sized or created for the digital asset industry. Um, so there, I would say, you know, some of the biggest challenges that we're seeing is, one, how to comply with the travel rule, not what is the travel rule. We all know that. We know what the thresholds are, but we don't know how to comply. That's one. Um, number two is how to identify whether wallets are hosted versus unhosted and therefore tailor controls accordingly. Accordingly. And then three, more thematically, is how to balance this heightened regulatory standard against user friction and things like de-risking in order to prevent regulatory arbitrage. I think that's sort of the thematic biggest challenge for the industry. So, you know, if we were to take each of these in turn, I think it's worth really talking about travel rule and unhosted wallets a little bit, because I think these are two of the biggest challenges from a financial crimes perspective that plague the industry. Um, with the travel rule, the Financial Action Task Force, uh, FATF, acknowledges that there has been progress in the industry, but the industry as a whole is not compliant. And there's this issue that we refer to as the sunrise problem. So in order to meet the spirit of the travel rule, which was created to aid institutions and law enforcement in the detection and investigation of financial crimes, 
all through, you know, maintaining an information trail of transaction information as transactions move from intermediary to intermediary, you really need global information exchange. So all the intermediaries in that transaction chain need to all be passing along travel rule information amongst one another to meet the whole purpose of why this was designed. But Adoption globally is occurring at different rates, um, both within country and between countries. And there is no one solution in the industry that has been adopted. So, you know, in traditional finance, we have the SWIFT messaging standard for international wires. It's used regardless of which correspondent bank you are. It has the same messaging standards and there's a technology and a means of capturing that information. We don't have that yet in the digital asset industry. And there's no single harmonized standard for travel rule compliance within the industry. And that would, of course, revolutionize the industry. But it's important to make sure that whatever solution is ultimately adopted, that it doesn't sacrifice the current privacy preserving and transaction speed benefits that, that exist in digital asset transactions. So there are solutions that are out there that firms are implementing for themselves that are very manual, um, that involve basically spreadsheets of client data. And that, of course, defeats the purpose of, you know, why blockchain was created, which was to preserve personally identifiable information. So whatever solution ends up coming out needs to be one that helps to not create additional, you know, privacy risk, additional hacking risks, et cetera. Um, And then with unhosted wallets, you know, we're increasingly seeing proposals in the U.S., the EU, Singapore around creating additional record keeping and reporting requirements, as well as lower reporting thresholds for unhosted wallet transactions. But, of course, these proposals have been met by pretty vocal industry opposition um, because they would result in, obviously, increased operational complexity. But there's also the point that you know, it's typically very challenging to determine whether a wallet is hosted or unhosted just based off of an address alone. And so the end result might be that regulated entities will need to treat most transactions as unhosted unless proven otherwise, which would make them subject to much more stringent record keeping and reporting requirements than traditional financial services industry participants. Um, So it can really hamstring the industry. And then, of course, Both of these challenges fit within the broader theme of regulatory compliance versus user friction. Um, In September uh, of this year, it's worth noting that the U.S. Treasury released a series of reports and action plans in response to an executive order um, that was issued earlier this year. Um, And they noted certain priorities in reducing regulatory arbitrage, cracking down on unregulated money services businesses, things like that. But the reality is, is that while different jurisdictions, even different states within the same country have different regulatory and reporting requirements, there will continue to be both arbitrage by exchanges and user preference for exchanges with a smoother, more frictionless user experience, which would also include preference for exchanges in less heavily regulated jurisdictions. And I'll give an example of this. You know, I've had friends say, oh, I don't want to open an account with X exchange. It's too much work. They want too much stuff for me. I just want to transact right away. So I'm going to get a VPN and I'm going to go and transact with this exchange, you know, that's hosted out of this other country. So you see that a lot. And it's not that they're, you know, trying to do anything truly nefarious. It's just they don't want to deal with the headache of sending all of this paperwork and waiting forever for their account to open. So these are the challenges that, you know, the industry really faces is that, On the one hand, they want to be compliant, but on the other hand, they don't want to lose market share to these 
other exchanges that are not compliant that are able to get away with other things because they're they're elsewhere. So of course, increased harmonization and enforcement uh, around AML regulatory standards would go a long way to reducing regulatory arbitrage if it's done kind of on an international scale. Um, but I really like to point out that all of this needs to be done in consultation with the industry. Otherwise, regulatory bodies might create regulation that's not right-sized, that cannot be readily implemented, and that might actually, unfortunately, create a chilling effect on business, innovation, and financial inclusion. So there's one sort of TLDR that I want to take away from all of this. It's that industry consultation prior to rulemaking is absolutely key. Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting challenge for regulators to preserve the the privacy protecting features and still create an environment that doesn't facilitate more illicit action. So I think, you know, I think we, you know, we're talking about preserving the, the privacy protecting features of the, the digital asset industry. Um, I think everyone's heard so much about hacks and, and data breaches and so on in, in this industry that, uh, you know, and, and it, it's the ease of use for money laundering and so on, that uh, digital asset transactions are now viewed with suspicion. But I, I guess in some ways that, that is unfair. There's a lot of legitimate use going on and so on. And it is not just a, a means of, well, the, the, the early joke was just, the, you know, a way of buying heroin on the dark web. And, and that was that was the only use case for, for Bitcoin. Um, but that's not the case anymore. And, and I think, uh, you know, blockchain, there's a lot of interesting qualities around the transparency that it can offer for regulators and enforcement. Can you talk a little bit about the good side? Yeah, absolutely, Lewis. You're, you're right that, you know, unfortunately, this industry started up at a time when, you know, that there was the Silk Road and it has been kind of unfairly painted with a broad brush ever since um, because it's been linked to those activities. But I would say that the key positive is exactly that increased transparency. With all data publicly recorded on the blockchain, you can trace activity over time. And as innovation advances in the blockchain analytics space, um, digital asset industry participants, as well as law enforcement, are going to increasingly be able to see high-risk interactions over time. And I think that there's there's a really great quote, and I have to credit my friend John Mellican at Elliptic for this point. I did not come up with it. <laughs> it's basically that digital assets are frequently perceived as a scary thing, right, when it comes to financial crime risk. But they're actually one of the worst mechanisms for laundering money because the record trail of every transaction is captured forever on the blockchain. And that means that even if you're not caught for your crimes today, or tomorrow, eventually you will be caught because your transaction laundering is out there, public and in the open. It's like this anvil that's constantly hanging over your head as a criminal. And do you really want that, you know, anvil to come down one day on you? And we actually saw this in action. Um, this came out in the news sometime earlier this year. Um, the, the 2016 hack resulted in nearly 120,000 stolen Bitcoin. And what's interesting is that the stolen Bitcoin from that hack was initially sent to a single wallet and 79% of that Bitcoin still remains there to this day. So that shows that they weren't able to actually spend any of that money, really. Um, in order to profit from the proceeds of their crime, the hackers needed to off-ramp that crypto into fiat. That's, that's, that's sort of a common industry term for saying they needed to convert that money. 
And the activity in the initial wallet was largely dormant for a number of years, for close to four years, until 2020, when there was a spike in activity in response to the rising price of Bitcoin, which makes sense because Bitcoin rose about 700% that year. So, of course, all of a sudden they have all this Bitcoin sitting there and it's valuable. So they need to start, you know, to convert it into dollars. So what happened was in April of uh, 2021, about 12,000 of the Bitcoin was moved. Um, the value at the time was around 774 million. The hackers were ultimately caught because they were attempting to off-ramp their, their Bitcoin and they used really common typologies. So one was the peeling chain, which is where smaller amounts of the transaction were being peeled off in an attempt to obfuscate the original illicit source of the transactions. They also used a privacy wallet in a further attempt to obfuscate the source of funds. And all of this was very visible on the blockchain. It was actually their very efforts to launder their Bitcoin that resulted in being apprehended. And, you know, between 2016, when they first committed their crime, and 2021, the advances in blockchain analytics were huge. So innovation ultimately caught up with them. This case illustrates that with continued advances in blockchain analytics, Plus, you have, you know, increased government takedowns of mixers and tumblers. You mentioned earlier Tornado Cash, right? You have more and more addresses that are continually being added to blockchain analytics tools that are being labeled. So every time you see interactions, even historic interactions with high-risk entities, you're able to catch those individuals later on in time. So their ability to remain hidden continuously is going to be undermined because of the powerful memory of the blockchain. Yeah. But one thing that I always like to say is that, you know, I like to put all of this in perspective because you started, Lewis, with saying, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of flack that the blockchain industry gets for for being high risk. Um, but it's worth noting that, you know, research indicates, I think this is a chain analysis report, that digital asset transactions involving illicit addresses represent only about 0.15 percent of digital asset transaction volume. This was for 2021. But this can be contrasted against estimates for illicit activity in the economy as a whole, which is conducted through traditional financial intermediaries with traditional fiat currencies. And that is in the order of two to 5% of global GDP. And that's according to the UN, uh, United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime, UNODC. So Really, it's still traditional finance. It's still large correspondent banks. It's not the blockchain we should be worried about. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the really exciting developments I hope to see over the next few years is that the tools that, you know, the blockchain analysis tools might be able to be, well, I guess as more and more of the traditional fiat world moves into digital transaction and digital settlement system, we might be able to apply tools developed for digital assets to, to traditional assets as well and uh, prevent more crime that way, possibly. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hopeful for that, too. Um, I'd like to come on to the question of payments. What do you see as some of the innovations in the industry and, and what does that mean for, for new risks that are coming into play there? Perhaps that's for Lorena. Um, thanks, Louis. Yeah, so before we talk about the risks, I wanted to first talk about two major benefits that we see in both the retail and institutional users. Um, so the first thing is faster settlement, right? We've heard a lot about settlement and the ease of which settlements can happen outside of a central bank. And by faster, I mean that it could be instantaneous as long as both endpoints are connected and can settle between themselves. So for example, in the US, several banks 
they recently lodged the consortium agreement between members that offer a blockchain-based stablecoin that is redeemable one-to-one amongst bank members. So this agreement supports a transfer between the members um, and enabling a low-cost solution that's considered real-time or instantaneous settlement. So this benefit is really boosted by this types of arrangements. And now you have a 24 by 7, 365 day settlement. So another benefit is peer-to-peer cross-border transfers via stablecoins without the need of intermediaries, such as a large network of correspondent banks that would otherwise be required to send international wires. Um, so with this, obviously, we are introducing some of uh, new risks. Over the summer, we witnessed how blockchain innovations like algorithmically controlled stablecoins and novel lending platforms resulted in payment systems risk and contagion impacting retail and institutional users, bearing some resemblance to the financial crisis back in 2007. So by this, I'm referring to the Terra or USD collapse. Um, Terra lost its value back in May and during the chaos um, caused uh, the crypto market to lose about 500 billion collectively. Uh, so Terra was an algorithmically controlled stablecoin, which means that its value or collateralized mechanism wasn't pegged to a stablecoin reserve asset such as the US dollar, like some other stablecoins. Uh, but interestingly enough, shortly before its collapse, UST overtook some rivals to become the third largest stablecoin in the cryptocurrency market, which makes what happens next much more impactful from a risk contagion perspective. So Terra's collateralization mechanism was based on another endogenous or sister token in the Terra ecosystem called Luna. Um, without getting too technical here, the mechanism behind the tokens was that uh, the two coins were designed to work together where a dollar worth of UST was always exchangeable for a dollar worth of Luna and vice versa. Uh, so with the stability maintained through an arbitrage mechanism where an imbalance of tokens would result in minting, or additional token creation and burning, token destruction, and collectively through these mechanisms, stability would be maintained. However, this arbitrage mechanism proved to have a design flaw that could not handle large transactions, which ultimately resulted in the crypto death spiral, where UST to Luna arbitrage resulted in an oversupply of Luna, which then led to the price drop of Luna, and then led to the loss of investor confidence and bank run on the assets and further reduction in the price of Luna and UST with an irreparable DPEG of the asset. So this collapse subsequently had a contagion effect on the crypto industry as a whole driven by speculation and negative news. Um, digital asset prices, exchanges, crypto hedge funds, lenders, all customers suffered. Another infamous collapse this summer uh, that demonstrates a contagion effect was also the Three Arrows Capital. 3AC, where we saw the crypto hedge fund failing to meet demands because of insolvency issue. Uh, the founders also admitted to overlooking a $500 million investment in Terra due to their closeness to Terra founder Do Kwon. Um, and then followed by Celsius, the famous crypto lending platform, which was already struggling with the slowed crypto industry, cited the Terra collapse as one of the key events that ultimately led to Celsius bankruptcy with investor confidence irreparably shattered, leading to an industry-wide bank run type of withdrawal scenario by Celsius users, meaning Celsius could not meet its borrowing commitments. Not all that different from the financial crisis. But it's worth noting, however, that where stablecoins are fiat-backed, there still can be issues. So for example, in Tether's DPEG challenges in the past, we also see how uh, there can be 
financial systemic risk. For context, the 2001 uh, CFTC um, issued the order against Tether for making untrue or misleading statements in connection with USDT stablecoin and fined Tether $41 million for making claims that the coin was fully backed by U.S. dollars. In fact, the CFTC order alleged that for a period of about three years, Tether reserves were not actually fully backed the majority of the time. So these are just some of the risks that we have seen in, in the recent past. Yeah, it's been amazing to to watch, uh, as you say, very similar to, to some financial crises we've seen in traditional finance. And uh, it's led uh, one of my colleagues to opine that it seems like the digital assets industry is kind of speed running the history of finance and, and discovering all the, the same the same problems for themselves. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the reaction from regulators was to the Terra Luna collapse and, and how they're addressing? I mean, I guess the, the problems were limited because, you know, digital assets are only sort of limited in their integration with the quote unquote real economy. But can you talk about what, what they're doing, what regulators are doing to prevent this sort of thing happening again? Um, sure. So we've seen the SEC or the Security and Exchange Commission. Um, they started an investigation against Terraform Labs and its founder, Do Kwan, um, and subsequently filed an action against both Terraform Labs and the founder for violating federal securities laws. Um, also, we saw Interpol issued a red notice for Do Kwan after South Korean prosecutors launched investigations into Kwan and his colleagues. Um, this also may have resulted in the mid-September White House release. I believe their release was a comprehensive framework for responsible development of digital assets. But let's also remember that, as Elizabeth mentioned, uh, President Biden's EO back in March instructed U.S. regulators to work on an effort to align the U.S. government's approach to digital assets. And today, there are a number of efforts that we have seen from both the House and the Senate to bring in regulations for stablecoins as well as crypto exchanges, um, resulting in a crypto market crash earlier this year to avoid the crypto market contagion that we spoke about. Just this month, the House introduced a draft legislation that will place a two-year ban on Terra-like coins. Um, so this would require a stablecoin issuer to hold all reserves associated with each fiat currency-backed stablecoin they issue. And I'm going to quote this. Um, it's three. One, certain government securities. Two, fully collateralized security repurchase agreements. And three, U.S. dollar and other non-digital currency. So the bill would also um, require that each stablecoin issuer publish a report on their reserve on their reserves monthly. So wow. to be clear, this is not a widespread ban altogether. Rather, it's just a needed break for research on algorithmic type stablecoins. And it's important to state here that there are several types of stablecoins. This bill would in effect allow for issuance of stablecoins by both bank and non-banks with the appropriate oversight by state and federal regulators. So the stablecoin Transparency Act was also introduced by Senator Haggerty. The legislation would then require stablecoins to be backed by government securities with maturities less than 12 months and require stablecoin issuers to publicly release audited reports of their reserves that are executed by third-party auditors. And then earlier this year, we also saw, and we uh, should be expecting more news from, the Responsible Innovation Act um, introduced by Senators Gillibrand and Loomis. This act would create a regulatory framework for digital assets focused on responsible financial innovation, transparency, and consumer protections while integrating digital assets into existing laws. We also saw the Federal Reserve 
uh, step into research potential implementation of CBDC, uh, which may have more benefits and risks. So according to the Federal Reserve, implementing a CBDC would enable the general public to make digital payments, and I quote this, this part, um, with no associated credit or liquidity risk. Um, so they did publish the paper that Elizabeth mentioned earlier. The one that I will be referring to is Money and Payments, the U.S. Dollar in the Age of Digital Transformation, where Congress needs to act promptly to enact legislation that would ensure payment stablecoins and payment stablecoin arrangements are subject to a consistent and comprehensive federal regulatory framework. So in my view, such a framework would benefit from including cybersecurity laws, including that of privacy. Um, so for CBDC, we've seen over 100 countries right now exploring the use of it, and just a handful, um, I think less than 10, have actually issued CBDC, uh, but most have been small economies without mass adoption. I think right now China is the largest economy that's currently in testing phase, um, but the global issuance and adoption of CBDCs is currently, currently in the infancy stages. Fantastic. Well, we're, we're running a little short on time, but uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on a couple more questions. Uh, you've mentioned the, the CBDCs, and, and we're also seeing, you know, uh, the major global banks, systemically important banks uh, and clearing companies looking into the same sorts of technology that underpin cryptocurrencies, you know, distributed ledger technologies and blockchain with a view to improving transaction settlement time. Can you talk a little bit about whether or not that that's the only way to achieve that? It seems like uh, that's where a lot of the research is focused, but are there other ways to uh, to achieve that as well? Okay, so I will start by saying that what we've seen today is definitely a reliance on intermediaries for international transaction processing and settlement, which we know can be more time consuming, costly and error prone, um, as well as subject to significant operational risk challenges. Um, so there may be payment solutions out there um, in the future that can solve for this problem without the use of like blockchain or distributed ledger technology, what we call DLT, that we haven't seen yet. Um, but we can't say for now. And so for now, the blockchain or DLT is showing a lot of promise, whether through the permission networks or stablecoin solutions, there may be, you know, a way to explore a faster international settlement. And also there's increased interest in traditional financial services sectors and payment processing space to adopt these technologies. So definitely don't want to leave those behind. Excellent. Yeah, it really does seem like there might be uh, there are the other possibilities for achieving mm -hmm. the, the same result. So we've discussed a lot of uh, topics in the payments risk space and, and some of the regulatory responses. Are there any big pieces of regulation that you're anticipating uh, over the next year or so that will make a big difference here? Um, so I'll, I'll be brief on this. Um, the U.S. Federal Reserve published a number of papers, uh, which uh, also Elizabeth mentioned, it's regarding CBDC and stablecoins. Um, so we expect to hear more on that. There's a call to some recommendations uh, that would inspire the harmonization and regulation, calling for federal framework of payments. Um, I think this is also included in the White House fact sheet um, that was just published last month, too. So the federal government's focus seems to be on consumer protection. While we know that in other jurisdictions, such as like the European Union, we've seen efforts to increase regulations and even the playing field, though they too are looking to enforce compliance against business practices uh, harming customers. Excellent. 
Um, well, I, I'm afraid time is running out, so we'll have to leave it there. But uh, I just want to say thank you to Elizabeth and Lorena for a really insightful and interesting uh, discussion on a very dynamic and rapidly changing area in, in technology and regulation. So we hope to hear more from you guys soon. Thank you to the audience for listening today. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn and to subscribe to the podcast. You can get it uh, on Spotify and iTunes and on demand on our website as well. So thank you very much for listening. See you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth podcast.